morning, everyone. Justin pointed this out a couple of weeks ago at the beginning of one of his sermons, but the truth is that we just sang my sermon this morning. It's almost as if I have nothing left to say, and that's, that's a good thing. That's what you want to accomplish in a church service. If, if you in the pews this morning leave here believing that there is power in the blood, that it was finished upon the cross, that the Father's love is truly, truly deep, and that Jesus paid it all, you will have left with all of the information that I want to present to you this morning. So Jared, thank you for that, brother. I, I, for one, am extremely grateful for that. If you want to go ahead and be turning with me, we're going to be in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Charles Spurgeon summarized his preaching method by famously stating, I take my text and make a beeline to the cross. Now there are plenty of ways that one could misinterpret or misuse that method or that quote, but generally it is a great rule to follow when teaching the Bible. The cross is in fact the focal point of Scripture the apex of God's plan of redemption for mankind. The events of the cross are foreshadowed in the Old Testament, revealed in the Gospels, and explained in the epistles. Jesus' crucifixion upon the cross, in conjunction with his resurrection that we will look at next week, is the single most important event in human history. In fact, if you have joined us any Wednesday night in the past 10 weeks, you have probably noticed that our curriculum believes this truth as well. Every lesson includes what they call a spotlight on the gospel, where the writers point out what our considered text, whether in Genesis, Jeremiah, Revelation, or any other book of the Bible, has to do with Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Making a beeline to the cross won't be necessary this morning, however, because we have arrived. We have arrived at the cross We have arrived at the moment in which Jesus accomplished redemption and satisfied the wrath of God. So if you will, and if you have not done so yet, meet me in Luke chapter 23. This morning as we walk through this text and a few other New Testament passages, my aim is to present and answer just two questions about the cross. First is what does the cross accomplish for the scoffer and for the non-believer And then second, what does the cross accomplish for the believer, for the saint who has put their hope in God? So if you've made your way to Luke chapter 23, I invite you to stand with me and follow along as I read verses 26 through 49. Beginning in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, 
For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There is also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has, not, has, has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all of the crowds that had assembled for this Spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. If you will, join me in prayer. God, I thank you for your word. I pray now, as we turn our attention to your word and the teaching of it, that you would mold us, that you would shape us, that you would transform our hearts, transform our minds, and give us obedience so that we can be faithful to what you have called us to do. God, help us to understand and comprehend your love. God, help us to see the beauty of the cross. Yes, help us to mourn it, but help us to see that there is power in the cross. Not in the physical cross, but what your Son, Jesus Christ, did on it. to to reconcile us to you, to take on our sin in our place. So God, help us to understand these things this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I may have caused a little confusion there, and for that I apologize. So in, in full transparency, one of the most difficult things, or one of the most difficult parts in crafting this particular sermon was deciding where to begin reading and where to begin teaching this morning. Do I begin in Pilate's judgment hall? Do I begin in the Garden of Gethsemane? Do I begin in the upper room? Do I begin in Genesis where sin entered the world through Adam, making the cross necessary? Of course, I'm being a little facetious with these questions, but identifying a starting point for the sermon was difficult because the Bible is one story with event after event after event leading to this moment. And it is all relevant in helping us to understand the context and the purpose 
of the cross. Before answering the two questions that I presented just a few moments ago, I do want to spend a little time helping us to understand this moment and understand the context surrounding the cross. The majority of us in our congregation have spent most of the past two years walking through the Gospel of John together, in which we made it through Jesus' high priestly prayer in the upper room. Now, I know that we can't bounce from gospel to gospel expecting to receive a coherent message in doing that, but I do think that, that us making it to that point gives me a little bit of liberty to not give a full recap of Jesus' ministry because we would be here all day. But from there, after he finished praying for his disciples in the upper room and all future believers, he left. Accompanied by the disciples, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He wasn't there simply to pray, however. He was there to wait. He was there to wait, waiting to be betrayed, waiting to be arrested, waiting to begin his journey to Calvary, to the cross. That night, Jesus was betrayed by one of his very own disciples, Judas, and abandoned by the rest of them. He was arrested and put through several trials throughout the night. He had opportunities to defend himself, but chose not to. Still, no guilt was found in him. Yet because of the demand of the people, the hatred from the people, he was beaten and handed over to be crucified, to be killed on the cross. And that's where our text this morning picks up. It was customary for criminals to carry the crossbeam of their cross through the town and to their place of death. And this, this was uh, to, to humiliate them for the crimes that they had committed. The soldier seized a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross for him, not because, Je- not because they cared to let Jesus off easy, but because he physically did not have the strength to carry it himself. So think about it. In the last 12 hours for Jesus, he had sweat blood as he prayed in the garden from the immense stress that he was under. He had been forced to walk nearly three miles as he was arrested and brought into the city. And he had been severely beaten not long ago. As he and Simon of Cyrene made their way from the city to Calvary, his destination of death, a large group of people followed and mourned his death. And Jesus looked back at them to convey a very clear message. Uh, his, His last message, so to speak, before he would die. He said, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. I will die, but I will defeat the grave. Now that wasn't his exact words to them, that last part, but that was the message that he was conveying, that I would die, but I would defeat the grave. I would raise to life. Instead, weep for yourselves and for your children, for for Jerusalem will receive my father's judgment and be destroyed. And in a greater sense, weep for those who reject me, for they will receive eternal judgment and eternal destruction. And then he returns to his journey. He recasts his eyes on the cross. He refocuses on his mission. At last, he arrives at his destination, his battleground, so to speak. He arrives at the cross on Calvary. So now as we move forward into our text I want us to revisit and answer those two questions that we began with just a moment ago. The first one was, what did the cross accomplish for the scoffer and the non-believer? The short answer to that question is absolutely nothing. The cross accomplishes absolutely nothing for the non-believer, for the scoffer, for the rebel of God. 
As we look back at this narrative, however, we do see that the scoffers at least thought that the cross had accomplished something for them. So look back with me at verses 33 through 38. It says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the Messiah, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that read, This is the king of the Jews. They scoffed at him. They ridiculed him by placing an inscription on his cross above his head that read, this is the king of the Jews, trying to insinuate that a king would never be placed in this situation. They taunted him, daring him to save himself, for they did not believe that he could. They mocked him by offering him sour wine to drink as he dehydrated on the cross. They even cast lots to divide his garments as he suffered in front of them and as he prayed for their forgiveness. And what did he do? What did he do in response to that? Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. He didn't say a word to them. He didn't lift a finger towards them. And then they killed him. They killed him. They followed through with their plan, their their desire, their their, their attempt at some sort of worldly victory. They killed him. I know we all know the basics of a crucifixion, but I do want to let your I do want us in this room this morning to let our minds wander for just a mo- just a moment. Picture the nails in his hands, the wood scraping against the wounds on his back where he had been beaten, the crown of thorns piercing his head, the weight of his body resting on his lungs, making each breath more and more painful. He was truly slaughtered. He was slaughtered as we read it just, just a moment ago. But again, brothers and sisters, he never once lost control of the moment. He was a lion choosing to be held in place by a string of yarn. He was victorious, or he would be victorious in the end. At the end of this passage, we're going to see that as he breathed his last breath, he said, Father, into your hands I give my spirit. In another account of the gospel, he says, it is finished because he is victorious and no attempt that these, the, the, these rebels of God could make against him could be victorious, could hold him in place. He let them believe that the cross had accomplished something for them. He let them believe that they had won. He let them wallow in their temporary satisfaction. But he will return triumphant with the sword in his hand, and he will rule and reign forever. The cross accomplishes absolutely nothing for the non-believer, for the rebel of God, though they may think that it accomplishes some sense of satisfaction or some sense of accomplishment, it accomplishes nothing for them. But what about for the believer, for the saint, for those who have put their hope in God and he has saved? What does the cross accomplish for them? First, for the believer, the cross is the source of eternal life. Look back with me at the interaction between Jesus and the two criminals that were hanging on his right and on his left. Verse 39 and following says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? 
save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Two criminals dying on each side of Jesus. Their knowledge of him was probably pretty similar as far as what they knew in their minds about him. They were very comparable, but their submission to him is drastically different. The first sees Jesus as an opportunity for worldly restoration. He looks upon Jesus, he rails at him and says, aren't you the Savior? Save yourself and save us. Get me down from here so that I can return to doing what I want to, to, to do so that I can return to my lifestyle, so that I can return to the false gods that I have. Don't we see these people around us today? People that want Jesus to fix their health, their financial situations, their marriage, and all of their other problems, but they want nothing to do with Jesus after that. Brothers and sisters, these people are guilty of the same thing as this criminal, and they're guilty of the same thing as those who scoffed at Jesus and those who mocked him. And for these people, the cross will accomplish nothing, for they have not put hope in Christ. They have not made Christ the God of their life. They have not acknowledged Him for who He is. And after the first criminal mocked Jesus, the second one spoke up, and he said to the other criminal, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. We're guilty But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So unlike the first criminal that spoke, this guy, he gets it. He understands who Jesus is. He understands the gospel message. He acknowledges God's power, recognizing him as one to be feared. He understands his sin and the consequences of them, admitting that he is under just condemnation, receiving what he deserves, death. He recognizes Jesus' righteousness and perfection. He acknowledges Jesus as a king with an eternal kingdom. And he looks to him alone for salvation, not only in the moment, for all of eternity. And then he proves his belief by making one simple plea. Jesus, remember me. Remember me. Church, that's our only hope today. Jesus, good and righteous king, son of God, remember me. Alistair Begg, in a famous sermon that I'm certain most of you have heard, dialogues how he imagined this conversation going when the thief on the cross arrives at the portals of heaven. This is so much cooler in his Scottish accent, by the way. I highly recommend looking it up on YouTube. It's, it's awesome. But anyways, he imagines the gatekeeper looking at the thief and asking, what are you doing here? I don't know. Well, who sent you here? Well, what, what? No one sent me here. I'm just here. Well, have you been justified by faith? Do you have peace with God? I don't know. Well, do you know anything? Yes. What do you know? Tell me what you know. That the man on the middle cross said I could come. That the man on the middle cross said I could come. Again, church, that's it. Our only hope in being made right with God and and entering into His eternal kingdom is by invitation of His Son, Jesus Christ. Growing in theology 
is wonderful. And I praise God that we're doing that here at Grace Covenant Church together. But our salvation boils down to one question. Do you believe that Jesus, the man on the middle cross, is God, is your only way to be saved from your sins, and is your only way to enter into his eternal kingdom? The thief on the cross, the criminal, he understood that, and he received eternal life for it. And I pray that you understand that as well. The cross is the source of eternal life. Next, for the believer, the cross is the source of access to God. So look back with me at verses 44 and 45. and says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Verse 44 isn't included simply to describe the setting or the weather as Jesus died. Instead, it is a direct fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that said darkness would cover the earth at noon as a sign of God's judgment. And by the way, there are many other Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in the story and in the account and the events that we just read, many of in which that I'm not going to have time to cover this morning. But in, in your small groups, as you prepare for your small groups, I encourage you to look those up so that we can uh, remind one another of those promises and, and praise God for fulfilling those promises through Jesus Christ. So that was a fulfillment in verse 44. The darkness, the sun failing to produce light, that was God's sign of His judgment in the moment. His judgment that was going upon His Son, Jesus Christ. And then in verse 45, Luke writes that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. I'm confident that most of you know this, but only the high priest was permitted to pass beyond the curtain once each year to enter into God's presence for all of Israel and make an atonement for their sins. As Jesus died on the cross, the curtain tore in two, however. Matthew, in his recording of this moment, even includes that the curtain was torn from top to bottom. Now who could tear the curtain from top to, from top to bottom but God? And why would he tear the curtain but to give his people direct access to himself? And how can his people approach him but by being covered and the righteousness gifted to them by Jesus Christ? And how can his people receive Jesus' righteousness but by his death on the cross as the substitutionary atonement for their sins, paying the penalty that they deserved so that they could walk freely with his righteousness? Brothers and sisters, we have no access to God without the cross, and we cannot approach him without the atonement of Jesus Christ upon the cross. The cross is the source of access to God. This account, according to Luke, has led us to see and believe that Jesus' work upon the cross is the source of eternal life and access to God. But there's still one question that remains. How? How is all of this possible? How can a wretched sinner receive eternal life? And how can a wretched sinner approach the holy God of the universe through a cross? a means by which people are, are, are killed for their crimes and, and, a, and a man dying upon that. How is all of this happening? How does this transaction occur? Paul, in his New Testament writings to various churches, helps us to understand what exactly is happening upon the cross that accomplishes so much for the believer. And, and that brings us to our, our final point this morning. Lastly, for the believer, the cross 
is the source of righteousness and redemption. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, in one of Paul's letters, he writes, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul lets us know that on the cross a spiritual transaction took place. God the Father placed upon Jesus Christ his Son, who, him, who himself was perfect and knew no sin, all of the guilt and all of the wrath that our sin deserved. And he bore it perfectly, totally satisfying the wrath of God for us. And in return, Christ clothed us in his righteousness so that we might be found blameless before God. Spurgeon explains it like this. He, he writes, Christ was not only guilty, or excuse me, Christ was not guilty and could not be made guilty, but he was treated as if he were guilty because he willed to stand in the place of the guilty. Yes, he was not only treated as a sinner, but he was treated as if he was as if he had been sin itself in the abstract. This is an amazing utterance. The sinless one was made to be sin. And brothers and sisters in Christ, he did it for you. He did it so that you might could obtain the righteousness that only he deserved. The cross is the source of our righteousness and it is our only hope for righteousness. No amount of good works, no amount of knowledge, nothing can obtain righteousness for us. Only the cross and Jesus' work upon the cross is the source of our righteousness. Galatians 3.13 adds, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul adds to his explanation here in Galatians that Jesus not only bore our sins, but that he actually became a curse for us. He received the curse that we rightfully deserve so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be redeemed. Redeemed, that's one of those words that we use in the church often. And sometimes I think we belittle its true meaning, but the word redeemed means to be bought back, to be bought back or to be saved from something at a cost. Jesus bought us back from the bondage of sin and the cost was his blood on the cross. The cost was him receiving the full wrath of God on the cross. The cross is the source of our redemption, of our being bought back from sin and being made right before God. Brothers and sisters in the room, put your hope in Jesus. Put your hope in what he has done on the cross. As I transition into a little bit of time of application, uh, leading us through what I believe this passage calls us to do, I want us to see four things. Non-believer in the room, if you're here this morning, maybe you're, maybe you can relate to the scoffer, the, the scoffers that that mock Jesus, that are in rebellion against Jesus, that hate Jesus. If you can relate to them, or perhaps you're just a, a non-believer, maybe you're like the thief on the cross, the first thief on the cross. And we don't know for certain that he hated Jesus, but yet he mocked him and he did not understand and did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God and that he came to establish an eternal kingdom rather than an earthly one. If you're in either of those categories, would you consider the cross? Would you consider the cross? Like the criminal that hung beside Jesus, the one that understood him rightly, 
Would you take ownership of your sins? Would you repent of them? And would you look to Jesus, the man on the middle cross, for salvation and eternal life? Christian in the room, would you remember the cross? You were bought with a high price. You were redeemed. You were bought back. On the cross, Jesus poured out his blood and bore the wrath of God that you deserve to redeem you, to claim you, to buy you back from the snares of sin and Satan. Would you remember that? As you go throughout your daily life, as you go to your workplace, as you go to school, wherever it might be, would you keep that on the forefront of your mind and let it change the way that you live your life, the way that you walk in obedience, the way that you live your life as an image bearer of God? Christian in the room, would you faithfully share the message of the cross and the hope and the joy that it brings. God the Father from the beginning of creation, he had a plan in mind for the cross, for the instrument, the physical cross. He had a plan in mind for it. But that plan did not include preaching the gospel. I believe that people often wear cross necklaces, place cross stickers on their car, and build cross monuments in hopes that someone would look upon it and be saved. Now, none of those things are bad things. I have crosses displayed throughout my house. But the cross, the physical cross that, that we use in all of those different ways, that's not the communicator of the gospel. It had a different goal, a different plan in mind. Brothers and sisters, God did not create the cross in His image he did not redeem the cross to himself, and he did not commission the cross to go and make disciples of all nations. He gave that pleasure to you and myself. Would you be faithful and allow God to use you to declare his excellencies to others by leading them, by escorting them to the cross? And then lastly, Christian in the room, when you doubt, make a beeline to the cross. When you doubt, make a beeline to the cross. Jesus did not die to give you a shot, so to speak. He died with your name on his heart. He died in your place. And on that note, before I close us in prayer, let me leave you with a few of my favorite lines from one of my favorite songs. He will hold me fast. And don't worry, I'm not going to sing it for you guys. I'm just going to, to read these lines. But, but the writer writes, those he saves are his delight, precious in his holy sight. He'll not let my soul be lost, bought by him at such a cost. For my life he bled and died. Justice has been satisfied. Raised with him to endless life till our faith is turned to sight. Brothers and sisters, only the cross makes these things possible. Only the cross paid the cost. Only it paid the price that we deserved. For my life, He bled and died. And only the cross satisfied the wrath of God. We cannot do it. We cannot satisfy the wrath of God ourselves. But Jesus did upon the cross for you and for me if you will believe in Him. Let's close together in prayer. Father, again, I, I praise you for who you are. 
Father, you are the holy God of the universe. You are perfect in all of your ways. You are powerful in all of your ways. Father, you alone spoke the world into existence and you alone hold it in place. And Father, out of love, even though we are sinners, even though we are rebels against you, you sent your Son so that we might be saved. You loved the world. You loved every tribe, tongue, and nation. And you sent your Son so that through belief in Him, faith in Him, we can have eternal life. God, we see that in other parts of Scripture, and we see that in this passage this morning. God, just as, as Jesus promised the, the thief on the cross, God, we will get to enjoy you for all of eternity in paradise with you. And Father, I thank you for that grace. Father, I thank you for the cross. Your word tells us uh, what, what man means for evil, you intend for good. And the cross is the, the perfect picture of that. What man thought was an instrument of death, an instrument of humiliation, you used it to reconcile us to yourself, to forgive us of our sins, to send your son to die upon it so that he could bear our sins and our guilt and the wrath that we deserve. And in exchange, let us walk free, covered in his righteousness so that we could be looked upon as blameless before you. God, thank you for that. Thank you for your grace. As we leave here this morning, I, I pray that this passage, that your truth, that your gospel would continue to mold our lives, to shape our thoughts, to move our hearts, to respond to you and your acts of love. God, I pray all of these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.